Great stuff. Thanks. Thanks so much, Jay. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm just going to get some pictures up on the screen. So you'll probably see something weird happening, which isn't just my face, which is weird, um, happening pretty soon. Um, so hopefully you'll be able to see the PowerPoint screen. Um, some of the evangelist guys that I can see, uh, is it all up? Can you see, Roger? Uh, yes. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So we've got three pictures down the side for me, but... Great stuff. It's fine. Okay. What you might want to do, um, because what I'll do is I'm going to talk and obviously, and I'm going to show some PowerPoint slides alongside that. So it'd be great for you to kind of try and minimize, um, the amount of participants you can see in your screen. And you hopefully, depends what device you're on. If you're on a computer, there'll be something you can do at the top of the, uh, the thing to get a thumbnail video. Um, you can just experiment a bit while I, while I jibber jabber for, for a few moments. But hopefully that way you'll minimise me. And if you put me then at the um, top right, as you look at it, of your screen, um, that should hopefully help you see any words that crop up on, on the slides as well. Right. With that, with that in mind, hopefully this is all making sense. What we're going to do is we're going to explore the exciting subject of, um, with the really snappy title as well, evangelism that understands today's culture. Now, as you go and approach this subject, obviously there are a million and one things you could say about culture. And we've got 40 minutes to try and, and say something that will hopefully be of help to us. And so I'm inevitably going to miss out a whole chunk of things. Um, so please forgive me for that. But I'm just going to try and narrow in on, on a few things, which we'll, you'll see in a few moments. Because essentially what we're going to try and do is we're going to try and get a hand around, a handle on really the, the main ways that people think in general in our culture. So the kind of default setting. Obviously, when we talk to people, we need to find out where they're coming from, what they believe, why they think what they think. But this is just the, the kind of, if you like, the, the default setting that, that people will have um, in, in, in our cultural setting. That's what we're going to look at first. Then we're going to look at then the consequences of that way of thinking. And then thirdly, we're going to look at what our calling is as those called to proclaim and herald our great and brilliant saviour, Jesus Christ. So without further ado, let's let's get cracking and start thinking a bit about culture. So what is culture to start with? Well, if you're bright, you could use those Latin stuff to explain it. But I'm going to go with a very good, simple definition, which I found really, really helpful. It's from a guy called Mark Green, who's from the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. And he says that what is culture? It's the way we do things around here. And I, I love that definition um, because it's very crisp. The way we do things around here. So, so what is the way that the Western world, if you like, does things? What is the way the Western world thinks at the moment? What is the cultural air that we're breathing in? Because it's important to say that, that most people haven't sat down and thought, well, this is going to be my belief system. And I'm going to believe this because of this and this and this. And then I'm going to take this belief and this belief. Most people haven't sat down and come up with their cultural understanding. Um, most people just imbibed it. They, they drunk it in through through the, the, the water, the drinks they've been fed through the Internet and through media and through the education system and through the way they've been brought up. And so what I want us to do is, is think about the kind of stuff that people just absorb by virtue of being living in the Western world. Or another way of putting it, the, the set of lenses, the worldview through which people view life. And it's been said about worldviews that they're, they're, they're a set of glasses that you don't look at necessarily. Most people don't look at their glasses and start going, oh, wow, this is a nice set of glasses. But most people will just look through their glasses. So what it is, what ways are people seeing the world? How is, uh, what kind of set of lenses are people using? This is what we're going to explore right now. And in order to, to do that, I wanted to suggest at the start that we've, we've really got two competing stories that have been present, um, at least over the last 600 years or so throughout our culture. We've had the Christian story, which we know, and we've also had the secular story. And they've been, if you like, kind of racing against each other. But at the moment, it seems as though um, the secular culture in lane two has absolutely blasted out of the blocks and has done a massive sprint, super uber fast and won and got all the adulation and all the gold medals and is getting all the cheering. And, and so I wanted to focus a bit on that and get us to think about um, where we've come from, why it is we're at the place where we currently are. So the Christian worldview is one which sees life through and in the triune God that we worship. 
the secular worldview is is seeing and viewing life away from God, outside the triune um, God. So let's let's look at that kind of understanding. Where do we come from? Well, we're going to take a little trip back in uh, Dr. Brown, Dr. Brown, Doc Brown and Marty McFly's DeLorean. And we're going to we're going to go back to uh, the year 1417. And we meet there a guy called Poggio. What a great name. Poggio Bracciolini uh, or Bracciolini even. And uh, Poggio was the papal secretary. So he's secretary to the Pope. Very important job. And yet Poggio had a bit of a hobby. He was a hobbyist. Um, and his hobby wasn't collecting things that you and I might collect, like thimbles, maybe from St. Ives and Oswald Twistle, or even collecting Star Wars memorabilia or match attacks. Now, his his big thing, his hobby was to collect books. He was a book hunter. And that meant he would go around on horseback around Europe um, into different countries, going to the monasteries and the abbeys and trying to find and hunt down the ancient Greek texts of philosophers and it was a big big kind of uh, thing back then it was it was quite a big thing as a as a hobby and so off Poggio went on horseback looking for these these lost works which to many people that era they were thinking it would be great to get back to an era where we were we were pre-christian where the world wasn't dark because of christianity but was full of light back like the ancient greeks and, and romans um, had and so off Poggio goes on this pursuit and one day he comes to Germany and he comes across this abbey and he goes down into the vaults and he discovers there a book by a guy called Lucretius. And he struck gold and he's so happy, he's chuffed to bits because this book he, he considers to be sacred scripture. It's been lost and now, and now it's been found. And as I say, it wasn't one of the 66 books of the Bible. It was an ancient text written by a guy called Lucretius who was born at the um, just before, well, around 96, I think, B.C. and and died in 55 B.C. And it was a poem that he discovered called The Nature of, of Things. Now, Lucretius's um, poem was all about this kind of idea. What if we're here in this world by chance? What if the gods are, are miles away, disinterested in us, not connected with us, not involved with us? What if we're just here by chance? And all life is, is just a bunch of random atoms bumping and swerving into each other and creating life as we know it. And shouldn't we just, therefore, if life is random, just pursue pleasure, not in a kind of crazy out of hand way, but just pursue our own comfort and live life doing what we what we want to do. Isn't that the way we should live our lives? Well, this is in essence what, what Lucretius's poem was about. And it was the it was the philosophy that he was espousing of a guy called Epicurus, which I'll come on to in a short, short while. But really, this was the 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 start of the Renaissance or the rebirth or the revival um, that took place in, in the 14th to the 17th century. And, and and people have seen this then, this rediscovery of this sacred text as the the start of the liberty away from and out of Christianity. This is the, the rebirth, the renewal of ancient Greek thought, pre-Christian thought that will make the modern world a new place and will give life rebirth. This at least is the um, the view that someone like Stephen Greenblatt, who's a Harvard historian, not to be confused with um, Baron Silas Greenback from Danger Mouse. I'm sure many of you make that category confusion there. Um, but it's the Stephen Greenback, Harvard historian, wrote this book, um, which was a Pulitzer Prize winning book in 2012 for nonfiction called The Swerve, where he recounts the story of, of Poggio Bracciolini. And he says, wouldn't life, in essence, in his book, be so much better if if Christianity was gone and we were back to the ancient ways of, of thinking? Well, why, why mention this? Why mention Lucretius? Why mention that he was trying to pump out all this Epicurean philosophy well it's because it's had this kind of this meandering effect through the centuries down into the 21st century and the ideas that Lucretius talked about which are nicked from Epicurus who was around um, 300 years or so before the birth of Christ three or 400 years before these these ideas have trickled through and have gained a lot of momentum I think particularly in the 21st century in which we find ourselves so what were Epicurus's beliefs. And I think this is where we're going to see now the relevance of it for 21st century um, Britain, 21st century UK. 
here's five quick fire rounds. We're on Zoom, so let's be Zoomy. Um, let's let's look at five quick um, beliefs that were pretty central to Epicurean thinking. Number one, uh, the go- gods or the gods are distant and irrelevant. In other words, if they do exist, they're miles away, disconnected, um, disinterested and uninvolved in the world. And that means we should therefore live our lives without reference to God. Does that sound familiar in the 21st century? It does to me. Number two, um, second Epicurean thought. Number two, that religion is man-made and it's oppressive. So the idea there being that that religion is just a man-made invention to make people docile, to make them compliant, to make them just do whatever those in power want them to do. It's a restrictive made up thing, which is just putting us in, in shackles. And, and it's interesting how um, Karl Marx, who talked about religion being the opium of the people, actually did his PhD on Epicurus and talked about Epicurus being this great enlightener of antiquity, of ancient times. So that's the idea. Religion is made up and suppressive. Number three, um, life is random. I mentioned that one earlier. Life is random. It's like a bunch of M&Ms that's been thrown by a child all over a table. And we're just here picking up the pieces, trying to deal with the lot we've been handed in, in life. Number four, death. What happens after death? Well, the Epicurean answer is absolutely nothing. Diddly squat, nothing. Zilch. And, and, and that's the point that you live, you die, you rot. And because there is no afterlife, then you should just focus on the here and now, living life as you please in a way in which you see fit, because the gods, if they are in existence, are, are nowhere to be seen, uninvolved and unconcerned. If you want a really kind of in a nutshell um, version of this, well, kind of a, quite a big nutshell, um, then you look at William Ernest Henley's poem Invictus, made famous uh, by Nelson Mandela. And uh, and that and that certainly in the film anyway, Invictus. If you want to if you want to kind of shorten the version of it, and uh, and what it what it kind of tells you in that poem is is really the Epicurean way of thinking. I am the captain of of my own soul, and I am the master of my own fate. And I will you know face death with my you know brow bloodied. I will face death, and I will stare in the face of death, and I will I will stare death down. It's that kind of defiance about about death i'll just live in the here and now and make make the most of it that's that's the epicurean understanding there is no afterlife and then number five what's the goal of life then if we're here by random the gods aren't interested if they exist or if god exists um everything's random what what's the point well the goal then is comfort the goal is pleasure that you maximize pleasure and you minimize pain and as i said before it doesn't mean that you go all wild into wild crazy living but it means you you do what's going to be best for you you live the good life the pleasant life the pleasing life the what you deem to be the beautiful life you pursue your goals to make yourself comfortable now as you heard that i wonder whether you go yeah that that makes a lot of sense so there are the kind of beliefs that we are encountering as we talk to people um, about jesus they're the kind of beliefs that are underlying um, why people act and think uh, the way they do well, that was a, a kind of thing from the, the 14th century, this rebirth, this rediscovery, this renewal of ancient pre-Christian thought. The Enlightenment, I'm not going to spend much time on this um, um, at all, but essentially the Enlightenment then adds something to this. And it's the, the addition of this pursuit of progress. And around the kind of you know, 18th century, a lot of good things happen in Christianity, great revivals, awakenings happening. And there was a, quite a bit of a buzz around and so in the Christian worldview, there's this there's this goal. We're eventually going to come to the new heavens and a new earth. Life has a goal. It has a trajectory where we're heading. And and so the Enlightenment, if you like, stole half inched. That's pinched for anyone from America. Um, half inched um, the the Christian worldview and, and the Christian idea of of a new heaven, a new earth. And this this idea that one day we will come to it. And so it married that then with with the idea of of the rebirth and and the revival and so the idea really was we're now enlightened people we're grown-up people who've escaped the darkness of of religion we are the lumieres we're the little lights in 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 this dark world let's go and stand on our own two feet and and do life for ourselves and and be victorious and and let's head towards our 
uh, goal of utopia. So if you want a kind of simple way of looking at the Enlightenment, just go and listen to A Whole New World um, on Disney's Aladdin. It, it puts it it puts it beautifully. But that's the whole idea is that there's a whole new world coming and there's dazzling. I won't sing it for you. Um, I know my ears got violated once when I listened to Peter Andre and Katie Price do a duet on it. And I've, I don't think I've ever recovered from that. The agenda are slightly perforated still. Anyway, that's that's the Enlightenment stuff. So what was going on? What is secularism, if you like? What is the, the era we're living in now? It's a marrying together of this, these, these Epicurean ideas and this idea that together on a, or on our own as lights, we can we can get there. We can we can do life without without God. If you like one way of putting it, as one scholar put it, is that the the nest, uh, there's a nest of Epicureanism that then the cuckoo of the Enlightenment came in and, and, and hatched in and, and took over. And and together this forms these ideas of, of what we call now uh, secularism, the idea that we can do life without the triune God. So. I mentioned there the, the idea then is, is there is this goal in in the secular mindset now that we want to get to a place where we can just enjoy life without God and be and be free from all the shackles of Christianity and and religion. And the question is, how how do people think they'll get there? Well, the idea that comes through constantly is we'll get there through being smart, through getting educated, which is why there's so much pressure constantly on our schools and our teachers and our kids you must be the smartest because we need to get to utopia and also it's uh, it's how will we get there how will we arrive well we'll get there on the vehicle of technology the smarter we get the quicker we get there the better uh, and so that's the the culture we're currently seeing and i don't know as you stand back from that um probably quite brain fried and i know i am um and and you, you think to yourself look yeah we're definitely in a secular world but it feels like i'm dorothy from the wizard of oz it, I thought I was living in Kansas um, and, and yet it feels like I've been picked up in this whirlwind and transported into a completely different world. That's because there's another story, a competing story that is happening in the world in, in which we live and has been for quite a while and has gained ascendancy um, in the world. There's an historian um, that Michael Otts mentioned last week called Tom Holland, not to be confused with the Spider-Man actor. This is a picture of him on the screen. And and he essentially says, do you know what? Christianity has, has shaped the Western world. All the good stuff we've got is here because of Christ crucified. Christ being crucified has absolutely transformed the West and all the things we value, like human rights, all that kind of jazz. It's all because of, of Jesus, essentially. So he talks about the, the merits of Christianity shaping the world. And then you've got someone like Stephen Greenblatt, who isn't who isn't the bad, the bad dude in all this, but he's just somebody who's got the wrong idea, I think, on it. But you've got him saying, actually, no, Christianity's caused the problems. Actually, the, the answers are in are in pre-Christian ways of thinking. And certainly the idea of secularism is the one that is is the dominant one at the moment. So let me turn then to what are the consequences? What's what are the consequences of thinking in a way in which in which you write God out of the picture, which is what the Epicurean stuff is all about. What are the consequences? Well, let me draw on four of them. Uh, the first one is that the counterfeit story is being told. Again, it's not that people are necessarily most. Some people maybe are, but most people aren't sitting down going, let's come up with a counterfeit story. Let's, you know, let's do a really fake story. No, it's, it's just the way um, of the world in rebellion against God. These things um, happen and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that which we won't go into right now but the counterfeit story the point here is is that we live in a world which is made by God and he's fully active in this world and so you cannot write God out of the picture you can try and suppress the truth you can try and plunge it down like a cafetiere um, but the truth will always um, always come to the surface it will always it always rise up and so when people are living by a different story, a secular story, they can't escape the Christian um, worldview. They can't escape the Christian grain of reality. And we know if you think about the Christian story, there's that, that fourfold structure. There's creation. God created the world. There's the fall. We seriously messed it up by rebelling against God. There's redemption. Number three, that Christ came into the world to sort it out and to be crowned king. And there's number four, that Jesus is going to come back and judge the living and the dead and right all wrongs and, and sort out the afterlife. 
And so we know that there's that kind of Christian story. And yet the secular idea that I've been talking about has a counterfeit story, a counterfeit version of this. What is it? Well, um, let the, the other Tom Holland, as you see on the screen, um, explain. Number one, creation. What's the, the secular alternative? Well, it's this idea that in the beginning um, I was a I was a clean slate. I was a, I was a blank canvas. I was good um, and I was free. Um, there was a that French guy, no, he's actually a Swiss guy, um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who said um, that everywhere man is, uh, sorry, man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains. And and that's the idea of of the fall. That 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 what happens when we were born free, when we we're actually this clean slate enjoying life. What happens? My things clicking on forward. Um, is is that people try to define us? That's what got wrong with the world. People came in and tried to say, this is who you should be and this is what you should do. And that was when I fell from my state of, of perfection and, and innocence, when people and society and Christians and Christianity tried to define me. So sin in this kind of idea is then anything or anyone that makes me feel bad. And I feel bad when people try to define me. That's why when Christians talk about morality or anything like that, we're seen as the sinners because we're the ones who say that this is actually wrong and, and this is right. And we're seen then as being those who are being oppressive and trying to tell people who they should be and what they should do. And that's that's the fool in their in their way of, of thinking. So the number three, what's the redemption alternative? Well, the redemption alternative is this. The way the way to get saved is to rediscover your inner self is to look within is to follow your heart is to let you be you. And you get it in every every Disney film. You get it through every celebrity. You get it bombarded um, at us all the time through through every advert, it seems. And that doesn't seem to be overbaking it from, from what I see out there in the world. That salvation is about rediscovering you, your inner self. And what's the end of it? What's the goal of it? What's the what's the consummation of it all? Well, the goal is just for you to to to, to find your life at a place of pleasure and comfort where you can just try and cram as many experiences into your life and into your world, doing whatever you can to just make yourself someone who maximises pleasure and minimises pain. Whether that's becoming a vegan, whether that's getting married, whether that's getting a, being smart, getting a great degree. That's the idea. Now, if that's a secular, secular salvation a view of things, then then you've got to think to yourself, actually, that sounds pretty tough if if we're here by accident and there is no rhyme or reason for life and we're just here to we're just trying to guess at what life is about we're just trying to make it up ourselves and trying to do life on our own then you'd imagine that'd be quite depressing and in the 20th century and certainly in the latter half of the 20th century a lot of kind of philosophers started going yeah this is a it's a complete and utter mess it's depressing there is no point to life let's just give up but as an american guy called richard rorty who bears an uncanny resemblance to one of my next door neighbours, actually. And, uh, and, and Richard Rorty said he agreed that there is no point to life. He said, well, there isn't. But let's not be so depressed about it. Why can't we try to make a nice life for ourselves? Why don't we go? Yeah, there's no point. But let's try and live the beautiful life. Let's try to make our lives beautiful. Let's try and make ourselves beautiful. Let's try and actually be a bit more happy about this world. And you can kind of see that idea again, that, that kind of Epicurean idea um being pumped out through through his ideas and, and philosophy you see it in the peter pandemic that we have where everyone's trying to be this eternal eternal uh, youth have this eternal youth where they're trying to be young eternally and uh, and you see it just worked out in, in our culture with the anxiety that's around so that's one of the consequences a, a false story gets 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 pumped out there um through through loads of different things but also then there's, there's a view of God that, that comes about. Now, if you ask people what is their view of God, again, you're going to get a million different responses. But what is the kind of default setting um, here? Well, it's it's this, this view of God that that of moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, I just had my dinner, but that feels to me like another course all in one, one mouthful. But what does that mean? The view of God being moralistic, therapeutic deism. Well, it's the idea that God is is like the genie in Aladdin. God's here to do what I want, when I want, because I want. And, and that's that's really the essence of it. Moralistic, God helps me to do good. Therapeutic, God is here to help me feel good. And deistic, God is here when I need him. And it really treats God then as as an app, as something which is just here to aid my life. 
um, when I when I need him um, and when I want him to be. And 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 the strange thing about that is is that when I've been doing some university missions recently, um, on in the light of the last year, I've had three different British blokes come up to me with with tears in their eyes, having heard about Jesus, but not crossed the line to to trusting in him at, at that stage anyway. And I wondered why it, why it was that they they were so moved by Jesus, yet they don't want to trust in him. And in conversation with them, it, it became clear to me that it's because they have this exact view of God, that he's here just to be an app in their life. They're the operating system. But Jesus can just be an app. And as I talked to one guy, he just said, I'm just trying to work out where Jesus will fit into my life and fit into my goals. And he expressed beautifully, but painfully and sadly, the, the reality of this of this MTD view of God. Now, it's not just belief systems that are out there. There's a whole bunch of other kind of cultural factors and um, that have provided a fertile breeding ground for different ways of thinking. Uh, Professor Sherry Turkle, who's also I think did a PhD at Harvard and is now a lecturer at MIT in the States. She she talks about a lot about um, what phones are doing and and screens are doing. And she says that this constant connection is changing the way people think of themselves. It's shaping a new way of being. And so she's saying that it's not just what we are seeing on our phones and the information we're getting from it. But it's the way that the use of the technology actually changes the way that we think. And and so her point is that when we're behind all these screens, when we're behind a windscreen and a car and a TV screen and a computer screen and a phone screen, what we're doing, what we're constantly learning and training ourselves to think in ways of is that we can control what we think. We can control what we do. We can control what we think is worth noticing in our lives. And so we apply that into all other manner of areas in our lives, whether that's to God or to other people. We can just screen out. We can separate people off. Um, from us and so it helps explain I think why it is that we're living in the current cultural climate that we're in but number three it's it's a failing story uh, you wonder why people are so deflated and angry and, and full of anxiety it's because it's a it's a hollow way of viewing life isn't this what Paul talks about in Colossians he says that see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. In other words, Epicureanism, secularism, whatever belief system people have, if it's not Jesus, it's going to be like a cheap chocolate egg that you crack open thinking, oh, brilliant. There's going to be all this lovely stuff. You bite the chocolate and it's actually not as good as what it promised to be. And inside the egg, you go to look at the centre and you're like, oh, it's just empty. There's, there's nothing there. It's just hollow. And that's the way of of the Epicurean uh, way of thinking but Paul remember draws us and draws our eyes constantly to Jesus and he says look but remember Christ in whom are, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge Jesus in, in in contrast to that cheap egg is the cream egg and when you crack open a cream egg you've got that juicy incredible so sweet fondant center and tastes delicious it does exactly what it says on the tin to, to mix a couple of metaphors and a bit of product placement there but the, the cream egg tastes incredible and that's what we have in Jesus. And that's what we can offer people when they're living these hollowed out lives that are just cracking and falling apart. And they've got no centre to them. We give them the centre. We give them the wisdom. We give them Jesus. And we'll see more of this in a few moments. So it's a, it's a failing story. Why? Well, think about going back to, I don't know, 1989, 1990, 1989, the Berlin Wall falls. Um, communism collapses. Or so we think. And then in 1990, um, what happens? The World Wide Web um, go get get started, and we suddenly suddenly think we've got this unfettered freedom. Now we can we can go into the world. The world is we're going to get to this utopia one day. The world's going to be a, a great place now. There's no fear of the Cold War anymore. There's no fear of the world blowing up. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. And this the internet then offers us access to everywhere and everything. We can see anything, do anything, be anyone. We've got all this stuff going on. Wow, wow. We're like a kid in a candy shop. We can we can have all this stuff. And yet that promise of unfettered freedom has actually enslaved and, and chained people. Professor Norina Hertz, who was a lecturer at University College London, interviewed 2000 teenagers back uh, five years ago, I think it was now. And she was asking them about their, their fears for the future, their understanding of life. 
And she came away um, coining a phrase about the generation born from about 1996 onwards. And she, she coined the phrase of Generation K. And the, the K stands for Katniss from the Hunger Games. Because she said as she talked with people, as she talked with these teens about their hopes and aspirations of the future, she realised they were crippled by the fears and the worries about things like ISIS, um, the, uh, the bombings that are taking place, the murders that are taking place in their world, the financial crisis, the corrupt governments, corrupt corporations. And she said they were just seeing all this stuff and they just felt that the odds were never in their favour. And despite this promise of progress, actually a lot of people are starting to go, man, this is a mess of a world. Life is completely messed up. I can't trust, just like Katniss couldn't trust anyone. I've just got to trust myself. She says, I think the Hunger Games resonates with them, Generation K, so much because they are Katniss navigating a dark and difficult world. So that's why people want to punch today in the face. But then, then, then fourthly, and just before I wrap up the last bit, um, two, two reactions then to this. So actually, I'm going to throw in a third as well. The two reactions. Well, I think when people are hearing this kind of secular story, they either then become these idealists in, in the world. Um, and see, thinking we can get to utopia. They become the idealists really detached from reality or they become cynics detached from humanity. So the idealists are those who say, look, if you just follow my vision for the world, then we'll get there. We'll get we'll get to the promised land. We'll we'll, we'll sort it out, life out and we'll, we'll be great. We'll, life will be good. Just follow my vision. And yet that seems in this world in which we live and particularly with what's going on at the moment, it seems like well, that's just not the case, is it? The world is a mess. Life is hard. Life is tough. But then you get those on the other hand, you become cynics and just go, well, clearly life is a mess. Um, what can we do but bolt the door in our homes, go in, binge, binge watch Netflix, order in our takeaway pizza, whether it's a Mighty Meaty from Pizza Hut or a Sloppy Giuseppe from Pizza Express. I don't mean you can order in from Pizza Express, but ignore that. Um, and I'll just buy some more stuff on Amazon Prime because I'm just in despair. People are a mess. The world's a mess. What do I do? But just close up shop. And so there's this, these two responses, those who are ridiculously positive, those who are ridiculously negative. But then I wanted to also throw out this third thing as well, because I think one of the things we are seeing that when there's so many people noticing the cracks and the problems with the world, is actually a bunch of others are starting to go, actually, I, I want the truth. I'm thirsty now for truth. I'm thirsty for reality. This guy, Douglas Murray, he's written a very interesting book called The Madness of the Crowds. I've got down on my shelf there. I was just looking at the title. And he he. um He's not a Christian, but he he writes very in, in an interesting way about the issues in our current culture. And uh, he, he talks about in an interview that I watched on, on the Rubin report uh, that he said, look, there's a whole bunch of people are coming to hear him speak. who say and it's incredibly moving, always a version of this, which is I want to be near people or in the same room as people who are telling the truth. Because I, because I would like to tell the truth in my own life to be a truthful person. They want to tell the truth. They want to live in truth. They want to be exploring truth. And I think that's 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 an interesting thing, because you're starting to see a whole bunch of people going, look, I'm fed up. I want reality. I want real life. And that's why. And I'll whistle stop this one because we need to, to wrap up. Um, I want to end on our calling. then. how do we respond in, in such a cultural climate? The answer is we always go to the good book. We go to uh, we go not the good book company because we're 10 of those. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You can go to either. Um, but, but particularly 10 of those. But we, what do we do? We go to the good book, the Bible, that is. And we, we preach Christ. Look, look what happens in Acts 17 when, when Paul is in Athens and he encounters Epicurean thinkers. It says a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul thinks with these big wigs, bright people, people living in a different way. What do I do? Um, uh, oh, I know. I'm going to preach Christ. If what he does all the time. I'm going to preach Jesus. I'm going to give them the cream egg. I'm going to tell people there's good news. And he preaches about Jesus, who he is and the resurrection. Which is a is it is it what's the big word sick dokey or something? That sounds like hokey dokey, um hokey cokey. But the, the sick dokey one implies the other. The re, when he preaches the resurrection, it must be because he's talked about the cross of Christ. Um, so he he preaches the good news about Christ crucified and risen from from the dead to these people. And, and how does he do it? Well, you can look at this screen a bit later, but you, you notice the way that he both connects 
with the Epicurean thinking and contends and contrasts the gospel with it. They think God's distant. He says, no, God made the world. They think religion's made up and oppressive. He says, no, God made the world. It's not man. This is the stuff isn't man made up. Uh, And they think life is random. He says, no, God's intentionally placed you where you are and I hope you'll turn to him. They say death means game over. He says, no, Jesus raised from the dead. Judgment is coming. There is an afterlife. They say the goal goal of life is just comfort, personal pleasure. He says, no, the goal of life is to know God and it's to give him uh, our worship. So we preach Christ. We preach the true story. And then we're realistic. Look at the responses you get. Someone in Acts 17, 32 goes, quite a few people go, Paul, you've been a muppet. We ain't going to listen to you. Some other people go, actually, what you're saying sounds really interesting. I want to hear more. And then others still believe. And I think we get those responses quite a bit at the moment. One one missiologist, um, last few slides, one missiologist, um, a guy called Stefan Pass. He's a Dutch guy. He's got a lot of great things to say. Some things you think, not so sure. But this this is is an absolute peach. He says, when we're living in this more secularised area of of the West, um, mission is more a matter of harvesting one by one after an infinite amount of cultivation, sowing and watering. Conversions are happening for sure, but little by little. It's what Roger was saying the other day. There is fruit. There are people trusting Christ, but it is difficult in a very secularised um, world. Sure, God could do massive things and, and change it around. And I think there's, there's great signs that people are getting fed up with, with secularism. But at the moment, um, the reality is that it's, it's few and far between. But people are getting saved, which is fundamentally brilliant news. So last thing, be realistic. There's a great book. I can't really go for it now um, called Faith for Exiles which is loads of research from the Barna group. And, and they sort of talk about how we need to help each other as Christians to, to be realistic and to grow as resilient disciples of Jesus in this world. And they talk about how we need to, as ourselves, experience intimacy with Jesus, have that authentic relationship, that love for Jesus thriving in our lives, how we need to become like a gorilla and develop the, the muscles of cultural discernment and see the, the fallacies of the way that people are thinking today. How number three, we need to forge, not force, meaningful relationships with older, with the older generation. Number four, how we need to train others and Christians how to live for Christ in on their front lines. The LICC do a great job with fruitfulness on the front line, which helps people do just that. And number five, the last one, we engage in countercultural mission when people are offering eggshells and rubbish um, to to others about what life is about. We go in with the beauty. We go in with the cream egg and we offer them Jesus and we live in a way that shows off Jesus to the world in which we live. Loads more we could say, but obviously I said way, way too much. So I'll hand back over uh, to, to the guys. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Martin. That really was very fantastic. That's brilliant. Um, now, just remember, it's not too late to send some questions over to Martin. So uh, I think they're going to put the, the little screen up on with the number there. The, the text number is 0794-6852-071. Or you can go on slido.com and put in the little code three fives and an eight, five, 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 eight. So if you want to send a question over there to, to Martin, please get that in. And then we're going to finish at 9.15. And at that point, we're going to break out into groups for prayer. So if you want to stay for prayer, uh, you're very welcome to. We'd love it, in fact, if you'd stay for prayer. And you just literally sit in your seat uh, and we'll put you across into different prayer groups and you'll get to meet some new people. OK, I'm going to hand over now uh, for the questions time. Martin, do you think that young people today distinguish between the real world and the virtual world or are they one and the same to them? Yeah, interesting. Uh, I think you got, you've got to, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've talked in sweeping generalisations today, but you, you kind of got to on this kind of subject. But you've got to talk to each each one. Uh, when you actually get down to talking to people, I think people often can distinguish between the, the fake uh, and the real. But at the same time, they're like the rest of us. They're they're sucked into the kind of capitalistic views of the world. There's a great book out there by um, um, another, I think another Harvard lady called Shoshana Zuboff called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. And in the book, she's talking about how the big companies like Google and Facebook and, and others have basically manipulate data about us to sell us identities. And I think 
a lot of people don't realize that and a lot of young people don't realize how they're getting manipulated by the stuff they see online and how you get echo chambers that just feed in what you want to hear and how the companies are selling you stuff all the time. So I think a lot of people don't, don't, don't see that kind of stuff happening, but there are programs and films that are increasingly making people aware. So I think there is a bit of blindness to, to distinction between reality and, and, and the virtual world, but also increasingly people are beginning to see things as well. But it just depends who you talk to. Um, if people haven't thought it through, then, then often it, the lines between the two are very, very blurred. Okay, thank you. In um, universities and further education colleges, what is the issue most troubling young people in your experience? Yeah, so my, my wife works quite a lot with uh, an organisation called Festive, and it's a great a great website to go on to. They they work with um, 16s to 18s, and and they do a, a lot of work trying to help those in FE and sixth form and, and in school sixth forms to to live for Jesus and to to preach the gospel, to speak about Jesus with their with their friends. And they're, they're getting a lot of kind of, you know, feedback about the issues of, of mental health and anxiety and pressure being put on them, um, particularly around education. So that those things are, are pretty big. So mental health is, is massive. Stress and anxiety is, is pretty huge. So I'd say those are the, the big, the big kind of issues. And yet you're find, we're finding in, in those FE colleges, you've got you've got these small pockets, often one or twos of Christians who are trying to be like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and live for Jesus there and, and share Jesus with their friends, talk about him, give them gospels. And so, yeah, it's, it's a difficult environment, but they're, they're finding that anxiety and mental health are pretty big issues. Do you think class is a key element to our culture or are we now in a classless society? Well, I don't know how I answer that one. That's a very beefy question. Um, the thing I think now the things often sometimes there is stuff about class, but there's a lot of stuff which is interesting to read on and people can go over the top on it on the whole kind of cultural Marxism idea where there's constantly groups that are pit against each other. So different identity groups are are put against one another. And that could be in, in terms of class. It could be that. But I think the whole kind of class thing now, which is kind of very big in the whole Marxism view, has been um for a sleight of hand change now so that the problems with life aren't just the you know the, the bourgeois and the proletariat that the, the the problems in life now are all these different identity groups kind of trying to say i'm the i'm the victim i'm the i'm the oppressed and so there's a lot of things going on um about you've got to constantly be pushing your identity and a lot of fighting about that you know so it's it, what's the problem with the world it's the baby boomers no what's the problem with the world is the younger generation and we're constantly in this in this place where we're trying to pit people against each other. Again, another good book to read on that is the Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt's The Coddling of the American Mind, where they talk about this this kind of thing going on. And so people are feeling absolutely fried and, and frazzled. And you, and you see it in conversations, you know, when or, or debates when people say speaking as a woman, speaking as a speaking as a working class man, speaking as oh yeah, and, and they they start putting their identity out before they then say something as a marker and as a, as a as a as a kind of thing to say I'm the oppressed one here. So there's a whole bunch of weird things going on. But the cultural Marxism, I, I wanted to look a bit more at that. But yeah, I remember time really. Haven't we? But anyway, hand back to you. Okay. What would you say to those who say that the Christian life is boring, but the non-Christian way is pleasurable? Do we have an answer to that? Yeah, I, yeah. I go I always go to John T for that one. And, and and go that when Jesus comes to do his first miracle, what does he do? For those who say Christianity is boring, what does he do? He turns 150 gallons of water into the finest wine. And, and he's here to say with, for his th- first miracle, the reason I'm here is to make the world overflow with joy. Have you looked at Jesus? And I'll just say that and then I'll leave that and open up the conversation and see what they have to say about Jesus and what it means to have joy. So, uh, yeah, I just throw out Jesus and then see what happens next. Do you think that most people have a worldview at all? Do they live for pleasure, illusion, never have any thought as to why they're here? How do you shake them into the need to see God? Yeah, so I think everyone does have a worldview. Um, Everyone certainly has a way, because a worldview is just a way of seeing the world, and we all have it. Um, People call it plausibility structures, you know, things that, that you, the way things that when you hear things, you filter it through what you already believe. And so everyone always has prior beliefs and prior 
assumptions. Everyone's got a worldview. Um, so it's just that most people don't see it. Um, it's what we were saying at the beginning that worldviews are a pair of glasses that you don't look at. Most people don't look at them, but they look through them. So they don't even realise they're doing it. So everyone does have a worldview. What was the second part of the um, question? Oh, sorry, you're on the next one. Yeah. <laughs> um, how do we shake them into a need to see God, to seek God? Yeah, well, we can't shake them. What, what we do is we, we um, do what Paul did in Acts 17. We preach Christ. We tell them about Jesus. And Jesus, because you're, you're putting Jesus alongside a hollow egg that's got cracks in it, um, that's, that's how you wake people up. You know, Hebrews talks about how people are shaking and quaking. And actually, um, Christ comes and his kingdom is unshakable. So we, we present the unshakable one. We present the rock. We present Jesus. Um, that's, that's what we do. And, and that's all we can do. But that's the best thing to do. How can we, like Paul, adapt how we tell the gospel? Um, because we so often speak as if we're addressing people who are still in a very much church influenced culture, but we're not anymore. Yeah, I, I think we've got to be careful about the, the language we use. We've got to think about there's a lot of Christianese. Um, that's the language. Apparently. Um, Christianese that's spoken uh, where we just assume words and ideas. And I don't think it means that we don't use those words, but I think it means when we do use them, we qualify them. We explain what we mean by them because there's just a lot of misunderstanding. A lot of people just don't have a, a scooby about about what we're what we're saying. So I think we just got to be contextual which means we we don't we never change the the message but we always change the method um and that is you, you change the the way you do things um and and the way you, you you contextualize the gospel i think it's by loving jesus knowing him so you know what it is you're trying to communicate um and then it's it's by listening you listen to the person you're talking to you ask them questions like michael was talking about last week and you find out where they're coming from and then you think oh okay they're coming from that um i can say this about jesus so it's, it's thinking about how can we get Jesus into into those conversations um, because he's the light that will expose the darkness of their, their worldview. I and mean, that's what John 3, 19 talks about. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world um, that men love or people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. So we shine the light. We, we offer them Jesus. Why do you think that so many teenagers brought up in Christian homes turn away from Christ in their later teenage years? Is this your experience? Um, yeah, I know, I know ones who have and I know ones who are actually thriving as well. And that, that's the book which I, I didn't really spend much time. Where is it? Here it is. Here we go. Um, Faith for Exiles. Um, that's that's why this, these guys wrote this book, because they thought that we want to talk. They talked to thousands and thousands of, of teens and 20s to find out why it is people in the teens were turning away um, and what actually the, were the hallmarks of those who are resilient disciples in what they call digitalized Babylon. So they say we live in this world where, where everything's accelerated and there's ac- constant access to everything. How do we live as resilient disciples of Jesus? And they, they talk about they're the five kind of things that they notice that are common amongst those who are going for Jesus. So I think one of the big things we need to do as, as followers of Jesus is we, we need to humble ourselves before God and get our hearts and our, our heads sorted out and go, what, what is this good news about Jesus so that we are actually thrilled by Jesus? Because if we're thrilled by him, that will be obvious to those around us. And, and those around us who are younger go, wow, I see that person, you know, living for Jesus. I see that person on fire for Jesus and I'm watching him. I'm watching him burn. I want, I watch, I want him, sh- watch him shine the light out there. And so I think it's as people see us on fire for Jesus, the younger ones, they go, I, I want that. I want, I want to be that person who knows God like that. So I think it's, it's down to, to us to repent and to believe the gospel the way we grow according to Paul and Colossians. Thank you. What are the main ways that we as Christians are swayed by the culture in which we live? What should we do about it? Yeah, so the stuff I said about the secular kind of worldview, I think actually that's so often the Christian worldview, that we, that we have a secularised view of life and yet we slap on a, a Christian veneer over the front. So it looks like we're, 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 we're proper followers of Jesus, but actually we're still living for exactly the same things that everyone else does. We're still thinking, how does Jesus fit into to my plans? Um, how's he going to help me in, in, in my life? So 
And again, I've forgotten the question, but I think that's what we're often doing. What was the question? <laughs> Just a sec. It's old age. <laughs> uh, the main ways that we as Christians are swayed by the culture in which we live. Yeah, by but not realising, I think as well how how we're manipulated by <laughs> by the media. And uh, you know, Edward Bernays, who was a um, the nephew of of Freud, he um, he he was a he was really the father of public relations, and and he was a propagandist. Um, and he, he basically he basically said, look, Hitler used all the, the Freudian ideas about the deep rooted desires of I fear and I want. Um, to manipulate the masses so he used it in wartime why don't we use it to manipulate people after wartime through media through advertising and so for us to wake up and go look we're everything we're listening to from celebrities to uh, politicians to social media to mainstream media it's all feeding us a story it's all telling us um, a story and if it isn't about jesus if it's not a christ-centered glorifying story it's going to be telling us a um a counterfeit version and so i think it's it's incumbent upon us to go let's develop as you saw in picture number two on that gorilla thing let's develop those cultural muscles of discernment and go how am i getting sucked into these hollow empty ways of philosophy so let's look at that for one but then not just look at that but go let me look at jesus and go wow he is the best so that i go oh those things are obvious now so it's, it's a, a double thing it's the listening to the word in the world thing and the stop thing um, you touched on the next question a little bit there. How much do you think people are affected by the media? Um, yeah, hugely. <laughs> yeah, we all are. Um, because, because they're appealing to our, our desires. Um, that's, that's how to get people. You know, Satan, Satan doesn't come at Eve of, I think it's Dallas Willard. He said Satan doesn't, doesn't come at Eve with a, with a, a stick. He comes at her with an idea. And I think we're all, we're all, partial to getting whacked by the the idea rather than the stick um we're we're creatures who get led astray by our own over desires is what um peter one peter talks about so i think it's just being aware of yeah how sinful we are how incredible christ is can you tell us a bit more about cultural marxism not really no (laughs) (laughs) other people can though um yeah it's just it's just the idea of you know, the Marxist idea being the big problem of life is is an economic one. Um, it's always the, uh, the the poshies, the riches, the the bourgeois, um, you know, dominating the proletariat, the common folk, and and that's been the eternal struggle. And then and then people were starting to see in the 20th century that the whole kind of Marxist communist thing wasn't really working out so well as millions of people get getting butchered. And and so philosophers in the, in the 60s. And had, he then had a big influence upon universities, started coming out with a, with, with let's kind of really do a sleight of hand thing of changing the, the focus away from pitting the, you know, the, the rich against the poor and let's actually make it about identity and let's basically then just bring down a, anyone's views, um, on, on, a, on anything. Let's, let's just basically just tear everything apart, deconstruct the whole, the whole thing. And so it's had loads of impact. On, on the social sciences again the, the coddling of the american mind by these aren't christians greg lukinoff and jonathan Haidt. they talk a bit about it in that book and um, there's a bit in the douglas murray book if you want to read a bit more about it but it's the constant pitting of of different identity groups against against each other so that everything is an immense war and battle happening if you want a christian take on it um, melvin uh, tinker taylor missionary sailor he's written a book on it um called hideous strength and how the west was lost so there's, there's various good resources out there and it help you go, oh, yeah, that's what's going on. I see that now. Um, but you can go a bit OTT on it. But, yeah, that's, I don't know, some of it. As Christians, should we try to avoid secular culture or interact with it? Um, it's, 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 doing, uh, it's doing the Daniel thing, isn't it? It's, uh, it's, you know, we've got books on it in the Bible. We, if you want to know how to deal with a secular culture, how we live like that, then read the book of Daniel, read the book of Jeremiah, um, read the book of Revelation, read the book of 1 Peter and 2 Peter, because mm-hmm. they're all books which deal very much with how you live in a, in a secular world as a minority and how you, actually you seek the flourishing of that culture and that country, but also you know when to say no and you know when to, um, how to, to stand up for, for the truth. So, yeah, the ways to do it is 
look at those books because they, they're a great insight into, yeah, engaging with it, loving those around us, um, being part of the world. And I think that there's different, again, if you want a book on it, um, Albert Walters' book, Creation Regained, is great at just saying, getting into our way of thinking that everything that God has created in this world is good. So we shouldn't ever demonize anything that God has created in this world. But we should realize that how in our sin, we either idolize it, make it everything, take the, make, the good, make the good thing God thing, or we demonize it and say it's a terrible thing. And I think in secularism, you're either going to be doing the idolizing or the demonizing thing. And what we're to do is see how Jesus redeems it. And, and so a Christian is someone who sees how our own hearts are going in the wrong direction on those things and actually says that how does Jesus make sense of this and how has he come to make it uh, right again? Uh, again, it's as you see those things that you start navigating um, the, the secular world in which we live. We live in a secular world. We can't escape that. So we shouldn't be running away. We should be running into it going, hey, we've got good news. We've got Jesus. Um, couple more, Martin. You're doing very well. Um, why do you think that the massive events, world events since the Second World War don't make people more spiritually concerned as opposed to just interested in spirituality? Hmm. Well, I think one of the things is what we're looking at, that, that story that's constantly given that the progress thing is, you know, we've had lots of things like, like the wars and like the Cold War and like a whole bunch of other things going on that should have woken people up. But it's just what, what Romans 1 says, isn't it? That we just keep going our own way thinking actually this will be the way, the way to live and this will be, be the best way. I think it's just the sinfulness, in other words, of, of, of our own hearts. And yet God brings these things or allows these things, depending on what it is. Um, and, and he does it to wake people up and go, look, this is a crazy way to live. You need to come back to me. Um, but I think it's just the hardness of our hearts. So, yeah, I don't think there's lots of explanations. Not, it doesn't make sense to, that's for sure. Uh, but there's that, that myth that we will we'll get towards utopia. Um, so lots of people go, I'll get back on it. And also the, the whole capitalism thing. I'm not against, you know, people making money. Making money is good. We, we, we read through Proverbs of our kids. Um, money, making money is good, but it's using it well and using it for the right purposes. But when we're constantly buying into these, these ideas, you need more stuff, you need to keep earning. I think we're just distracted. And with our phones, we're distracted away from reality. So we don't even stop to bother to consider the big questions. Okay. You said that the view of culture is that I am the operating system and God is an app. How do we persuade people that they actually need a new operating system? Yeah. Um, one way showing that their operating system is rubbish. Um, showing that it doesn't work. There's glitches in it. There's problems in it. So I think some of this is pointing those things out to people. Um, it's us, you know, like for, so for, for the generation that kind of been told you can, you can have it all by the age of 30. Um, for those who are slightly older and starting to realize that I'm never going to be what I was, I was always told I could be anything I wanted to be. And then you hit 30 and you go, Oh man, I can't be, can I? And you start to realize those, those things. So it's pointing those things out and go, your operating system is not functioning very well. I mean, you do it in a gracious way, of course. Um, but you, you help them see some of the problems which is what Paul was doing in the Acts 17 thing. But then, then you say, look, yeah, that is a problem, but let me show you the operating system that is fully functional with no bugs, no malware, that works perfectly every time. Um, it's Jesus. And, and you, again, you, you show them Jesus. You, you compare and contrast. And it's right, sorry, just one, one's come in there. Do different churches have different cultures? And if so, what do they need to be aware of? <laughs> um, yeah, that's not, that's not cool. um, yeah, of course they do. Um, yeah, different churches do, different denominations do. Um, there's, 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 there's subcultures are everywhere, but even within in one church, there there can be subcultures within within that church. So, yeah, there are there are. Yeah, I agree. There can be and are for sure. Um, but I, I think. Yeah, and some of those things can be for good reasons. Some of those things can be bad reasons. And again, you, you weigh them up. It depends on what it is. It depends on how you respond. Uh, but certainly, you know, again, in Colossians, Paul, Paul talks about verses 16 to 23, how we shouldn't get sidetracked by legalism or mysticism or anything crazy that isn't dependent on Christ. So we must subject our subcultures and our cultures, whatever they may be, to Jesus. Do they match up with him? If they don't, throw them out the window. If they do, go for it.
Martin, thank you so much for tonight. It's going to be on the um, on the YouTube channel. But if anybody actually wanted a copy of your PowerPoint, are you happy for that to be emailed out? Yeah, it's all plagiarised, so yeah, feel free. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In which case, uh, if anybody does want a copy, if they just email zoom at arv.org.uk, uh, zoom at arv.org.uk, .org.uk and ask for a copy and then we'll get that to Martin or just reply to the email that you received um, when you got the link for this evening's meeting. Well, thank you ever so much Martin and I think we'll pass it back to Joe. Yeah and thank you Janice also for, for chairing the questions there. Now 